What is up, Hockey IQ listeners? I'm here to chat about our newest sponsor, Sensorina. Your brain is one of the most important parts of your body. Why not invest in a tool that allows you to train it? With Sensorina, athletes can gain a competitive edge using VR training. Players are able to go through a scenario thousands of times without having to step foot on the ice. No more waiting around for puck touches or perfect scenarios. Sensorina can enhance reaction time, decision-making, and multitasking abilities, making you the next MVP. I mean, if the LA Kings are using it, it's got to be good. With our promo code HockeyIQ, you receive $50 off an annual plan purchase. Head on over to Sensorina.com to check it all out. On the Hockey IQ podcast today, we bring on Gabe Zellico, uh, goalie, mental performance coach, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Gabe, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This will be fun. Well, I'm going to let you uh, give us a quick 30-second background. I'm always hating when people go long, so uh, keep it brief. because I mean, you got, you got a lot of great stuff, and we're going to then go straight into it and dive right in. Yeah, so to keep it brief on what I do, I basically train athletes from the neck up and in between the ears. So I'm working on mental performance. This basically entails mental skills, so teaching athletes how to develop a routine, how to form a mantra that helps direct their thoughts, and how to be in the present moment. And then teaching them mindsets, so how can you look at failure as information rather than getting emotionally wrapped up in those. And that's kind of the two really core ways that I help athletes uh, on the mental performance side. All right. And then what about on uh, your personal side, your personal story? Yeah, so I was born um, with a little underdeveloped hand. Uh, it's called symbrachidactyly. So basically, I just have like, I like to describe it as a thumb and half an index finger. So I basically just have that on my right hand. So I do a lot of pinching. And although despite that, I've been playing hockey for about 20 years, mainly as a goalie. So I played for Cal State Fullerton the last few years and just graduated. And yeah, I, I can't get enough of hockey. I've been liking it even more like with every year. So uh, it's really fun to be working with a lot of hockey players right now. Awesome. Beautifully concise. This, this is, this is going to be a great episode. I can just tell, you know, um, it won't, it, it won't be as concise when we get into the, the fun, exciting mental performance skills and stuff that I got for you. Cause I just get, I get going on that stuff, but yeah, good, good to start off concise. All right. Well, let's, let's start with an easy layup here. So one of my favorite things in the world is talking about decision fatigue. Um, you know, the exciting world that is, and I, I know you and I talked a little bit about Obama and his suits. So if you wouldn't mind just diving into the whole concept behind the fact that Obama used to have, and maybe probably still does, two suits. Yeah, so this is a concept that people get really confused about when I start talking about and how it relates to their hockey performance, when I start talking about Obama and his, and his suits. But basically, the concept is Obama, during his presidency, would only give himself the option of like putting on two suits or wearing a certain tie for each day of the week because he had so many other more important decisions to make that day. And if he had to waste time every single morning choosing what tie he was going to wear or what suit he was going to wear, although maybe not incredibly significant, he is using, as I like to use it, brain power or cognitive resources on these decisions. And what's going to happen is this is going to impact his decision-making and his efficiency in thinking when it's like 3 or 4 p.m. towards the end of the day when you start getting tired. So he would control for that um, fatigue, decision fatigue at the end of the day by helping himself in the morning, creating easier decisions and basically just creating a routine. 
that was going to make him perform better and think better um, later in the day. Yeah, it's fascinating. L- literally two colors. You have a ton of suits in those two colors, but it was like this or that, nothing more. Um, and it's super powerful because if you're someone who makes a lot of decisions during a day, um, by the end of it, you're absolutely creamed. Like white collar workers may not be physically smoked, but mentally they'll be just burnt. Uh, which leads me to my next thought here is talking about burnout because it does happen to everyone, especially if you've got a passion and you're really working towards it. Uh, and even with like the caregiver's dilemma where you want to help everyone else so much that you forget to go and take care of yourself. Um, you know, how, how do you go about managing yourself and managing the idea of not getting into burnout? Or if you do get into burnout, how do we center ourselves and come back uh, from that spot? Cause it's, it's a really low, low for those that have experienced it. Yeah. Burnout is tough. And I think it's only getting a bit more prevalent with how much pressure is on athletes from a younger age. So they're in that kind of, they're in that pre burnout phase longer or earlier. So then you see more kids getting burnout, but basically I see burnout at least the way to get out of burnout is the most well-researched. I think the most consistent tool is basically going back to why you're doing this. Why are you playing hockey if you're getting really burnt out? Because burnout often comes from a lot of extrinsic motivation. So if you're motivated by money or status or scoring goals, all this stuff that's not really inside your like own motivation for your own enjoyment of the game, that's going to lead to more burnout or at least more susceptible to being burned out. And if you do get into this feeling of, man, I'm not enjoying the sport anymore. I'm burned out. I don't feel like going to practices. Games don't excite me. It's important to go back to your why. And if you can go back to your why and realize, hang on, maybe I'm doing this for the wrong reasons and that's why I'm getting burned out, then you can start kind of changing that way of thinking. Maybe that can prompt you to take a break, which can be huge for managing burnout. Or you can change your why of realizing, oh, I'm only doing this for kind of the wrong reasons. Maybe I'm doing this more for the friendships that I'm making on my teams, more for the joy of the sport and connecting with other people, building chemistry on the ice. So... I think burnout comes from a lot of why you're doing this. And once that gets exacerbated of like, oh, I'm doing this to score goals. I'm not scoring goals anymore. Yeah, that's going to create more burnout. And then kind of going back to like, okay, let me, let me take a step back and ask myself, why am I doing this? And that can give you a lot of good information on, on the burnout you're, you're experiencing. I've been thinking this is like the uh, bachelor and bachelorette, you know, you're, you're not here for the right reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or I, lo- I love the, the the one where you talked about like the people realize they're there more for the friendships and the camaraderie because um, you know there's nothing wrong with that like that is perfectly acceptable and maybe the level you're currently playing at uh, isn't where you want to be like you just want to have fun with your friends and that's perfectly fine or like people you're doing that even like people ask you like why aren't you playing at X Y and Z or doing this and that and the other it's like if you can at least start to understand yourself like that is absolutely massive. Um, so I, I love that. Um, part of the burnout is like coping. Like before you fully get to burning out, like you're trying to cope with the situation. Um, and when things get stressful, like you automatically go into these these coping, we'll say styles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to hear your opinion on, around coping. So I know you've done a lot of thinking and talking and researching on the idea of like coping styles, like self-defeating versus self-uplifting. Yeah, I mean, I think it all comes down to how we cope, right? And that's going to create two very different athletes just based on their coping styles. Everything else might be the same. But if one athlete is going from, let's say, AAA to their juniors, 
and they're experiencing, oh, they're not every, they're not as good as they thought and they have to really work hard. If you have two different athletes that cope with that extremely differently, so you have one athlete coping with that stress of, I'm going to attack this with a problem solving attitude. I'm going to go to all my coaches and say, hey, I need to get better. How can you help me? If I'm going to go watch more game film, if I'm going to do all these different things to really improve my skill set, it's going to help my, um, my mindset going forward. Whereas if you have an athlete who is coping with that stress of thinking, oh man, I'm going to get emotionally wrapped up in this and think I'm not as worth much as much as I once thought. If I'm not going to go to my coaches and instead cry in the corner and feel bad for myself and pity myself, imagine how different those athletes' careers might be even though they're dealing with the exact same type of stress and same adversity. So yeah, I think it all comes down to how you cope with stress and how you can build yourself back up and not um, build yourself or tear yourself down uh, from some a point of stress. And, and what I teach athletes is coping styles and coping um, different tools to cope, basically. So a lot of the mental skills I do teach these athletes are, okay, how are you going to cope with this anxiety and stress that you're feeling? so that you can actually still come back to your next game and, and week of practices with an effective mindset, one that you want to improve and get better at, and one that isn't going to shy away from the game and just want to be on the bench or maybe fake a sickness to get out of playing. Yeah, and I, I love the point you're bringing up where you talked about the player almost, a, and this is definitely what some players do, is like they start to attach their athletic performance to like their self-worth, which is one of the worst things you possibly can see. And Oh yeah. Every coach has seen this happen. And, you know, I, I still struggle with it as a coach of helping players understand like, I'm going to value you as a person the same, no matter what, like you, the person are awesome and valuable and bringing, are bringing something to this team, to this environment, whatever it may be versus the player where, okay, you may not be performing to where we want you to be or where you want to be. That's okay. We're going to help you get there. And, and, having them understand the difference because it, it's such a big problem, uh, especially with people that have always had success. So they feel very confident based on the outcomes of things first and foremost. Yeah. I heard this term in, in Angela Duckworth's book, Grits, that I think we were talking about earlier, um, fragile perfects. So these are the people who are the best player on the ice basically since they were a kid. And now they get to a point, you know, maybe it's juniors, college, or even the NHL, where they're no longer the best. And it's the first time in their life that they're not the best. So if you're 18 years old and you're now finally dealing with this adversity of, oh, it's not that easy for me, this is where the fragile perfect comes in because they are fragile since they didn't have to learn any tools to really cope with the adversity and stress that they are not the best player on the ice and they need to do a lot more to get their game back up to speed with everybody else. And if you don't learn those tools when you're young, it's really hard to deal with that stress at that age of like 18, as opposed to, let's say you're 12, when you start finally go, going on teams and you're not the best player on the ice, that's when you start to learn these tools. So there's so many of these athletes out there that don't really know how to handle this stress effectively, right? They might, they might handle it in their own way, but this is going to be bringing themselves down. And it's, again, self-defeating, self-limiting, rather than if this, this player were started to learn these tools at a younger age, they're going to be more inclined to do the self-uplifting uplifting behaviors and have effective coping styles rather than ineffective coping styles when that adversity does hit. Yeah, I always try to bring it back to the golf ball. Like a golf ball is better because it's not a perfect circle. Like mm, the dimples yeah. <laughs> add a lot 
to the golf ball. Like, and the way they found this out is they used to actually heat the ball back up and put it back into a perfect circle. But the ones that could not afford to do so just had the nicks in their ball. So as they were playing, they started to realize like, oh, the ball has a better ball flight. It's actually going further. Obviously, we know the physics behind it now. You know, you're not getting laminar airflow, creating vortices, which allow less drag because you're not creating um, that low, low spot behind it. So like adversity is good. Like it does push you further, puts you on a better, more predictable path. Um, so I think that's absolutely, absolutely vital. You, you mentioned something really great, which is like self-defeating behavior, self-limiting behaviors. I know we chatted on this a little bit, but like self-defeating behaviors for me are like shooting yourself in the foot. Self-limiting may be like, you're doing fine, but maybe you're not allowing yourself to really reach the upper levels of your potential. Yeah, I think the self-limiting is like, oh, I know that this would be good for me, like maybe having this better meal or doing this new type of training. And it's basically like you're lowering your ceiling. Like my potential is not as high as it could be because of what I'm not doing. Whereas the self-defeating is getting into this negative self-talk, getting into, oh, I'm not going to go to my coach because I'm scared of what he might say or his, his judgment. This is just, it's making you actively worse, essentially. And that's, that's not what that imagine what that does to your mental game. It's, it's this vicious cycle of once you get into these self-defeating behaviors, it's going to create even more self-doubt, even less consistency. And this is going to make you a worse player for that next week. And then this is just going to keep continuing, right? More self-doubt, more emotion wrapped up into your performances because it's so much more impactful. You're, you might get more burnt out because there's less joy for the game. So it's really important to increase awareness of your behaviors and how they might be self-limiting, self-defeating, or self-uplifting. And I always talk about, I mean, I, if there's one thing I can't talk enough about, it's about awareness. And this could be awareness, again, about the behaviors that you're engaging in and how that impacts you on the ice. And then awareness of where your mind goes on the ice and how to bring it back to thinking effectively and functionally rather than ineffectively or dysfunctionally because you can't do anything without having the awareness first right that's just always the first step oh man it's like you're a big big follower of the hockey iq newsletter saying awareness is the first step i mean we literally wrote a post uh and that might be word for word on what i titled it so (laughs) glad we're on the same same team here uh with that and i think with the awareness it all comes down to like getting into where your feet are and taking stock and a good way to do that is like, hey, take a breath. Um, and, I, and I know you've talked about this in the past about taking a breath. Uh, like it's popular, but I don't think we do enough to understand why it's so powerful and it's so good for the body and mind. Yeah, you know, again, let's go back to two different athletes and you have a coach telling them the exact same thing. Hey, uh, let's say it's before shootout, right? So you got the nerves going and the coach says, hey, just take a deep breath and you'll feel better, right? And you'll calm down. And both players might take a deep breath, but let's say one player actually knows why taking a deep breath is going to calm them down. And then the other player just knows, yeah, I've heard a lot that taking a deep breath is good to calm the nerves. The player who knows a bit more about the science and psychology of it is going to feel actually more calm and in control than the player who just, yeah, is just going, is just doing it because they're told to. And a couple ways that this breath is actually research to show how it controls nerves and manages nerves is because 
basically you can think about the inhale as the gas pedal of the body and the exhale as the brakes of the body. What happens is when you inhale, that's the gas pedal for your heart rate. So your heart rate might increase just a little bit when you inhale. And when you exhale, it might decrease just a little bit. However, there are things that we can do to leverage this mechanism to make it more effective, more impactful. And so we might actually feel the effects of taking a deep breath rather than just thinking, yeah, hopefully this calms me down. So if I know that, okay, I know that exhaling calms my heart rate down a little bit, it's going to slow it down. And before a shootout, that heart rate is going to be excessively high, right? It's going to be so high that our muscle coordination is going to take a hit. So when I want to do this very precise deke and have this precise accuracy for my shot, I want to be in the spot where my muscles are going to be firing very effectively. And you need obviously an elevated heart rate to do that. So you can uh, supply those muscles with enough blood. However, very often it gets to be too high. And that's when we have the stress response of when your muscles are not coordinating as effectively as possible. So taking a deep breath with longer exhales is going to lower the heart rate just a little bit. And if we go from breathing just randomly to actually focusing on our breathing of, okay, I'm going to do three seconds of inhaling and then five seconds of exhaling. You have this net gain of what we call parasympathetic nervous system activity. And again, that's just like the breaks of the body, slowing the, slowing the body's um, neurological activity down. If I'm doing that over the course of a minute, two minutes before my shootout attempt, because I know I'm going, or I'm doing this before a game, I know that I'm doing stuff to control this heart rate and lower it a little bit. And similarly, this effect is improved when you can do diaphragmatic breathing at the same time. When we do chest breathing up here, it's not as effective in supplying our brain and muscles with oxygen. And basically that gas exchange is just not as effective, right? So if we can use our diaphragm, use our belly to breathe when we're trying to get this effect of breathing to slow the heart rate down, it's going to be better to use the belly because we're getting basically more bang for your buck. So let's say one, one of these players knows all of that information about why this breath can help control their nerves. And then the other player doesn't know any of that. The player who actually knows the science about why it's important to take a breath is going to be much more confident in that shootout attempt than the other player because they're actually in control of their body more than the other player. So that's just kind of, and again, that's not even all the science there is about why taking a breath is so important, but that's one example of, at least for me and for a lot of clients that I, that I teach, why knowing the science behind the tool is so important because you're going to more actively do it and know that you're getting benefiting effects from it. Yeah. And it's, it's so critical to like calming yourself, like extra long, extra, like both ways in and out. I find for myself to be extremely valuable and just like calming my mind, which I find that gets the most jittery, like the muscles will be jittery, but also just like the mind jitters. And I'm not sure what the science is there, but just yes. from a person who's done it a few times, like super helpful. Yeah. There's uh, like, I don't know if there's a ton of research yet, but I know a lot of my colleagues in the field talk about this. Um, and I think it makes sense where our mind and body are obviously connected. So if our body's freaking out, like really excessively high energy, our mind is going to follow that. So if we're really shaking in our hands, we're sweating a lot, we feel our heart just beating out of our chest, it makes sense that our mind and our thoughts are going to become a bit more erratic, maybe more irrational and more nerve wracking than if we were just feeling super calm within our body. So um, any tools we have to calm the body 
are going to also calm the mind and any tools that we have that are going to calm the mind are also going to calm the body because I think it's easy to say now with all the research that we have that the mind and body are connected. They're not, they're not two separate entities. Yes. And they've shown that kids that are active have better grades in school, I believe as well. That is a very, very big sticking point for like schools and why they first expanded a lot of their athletic programs or just like after school activities is because the more that you're active physically and the better you are physically, that leads to a better mind as well. And there's such an interconnectivity um, uh, between those two. And it, it's kind of like, you know, why, why do we do meditation, right? Like get in touch with ourselves, focus on our body. Like, Oh, do we need to fix something here to feel better? Do we need to bring attention elsewhere? Um, and just finding that connection between all of yourself. And I know this kind of gets like fluffy for a lot of people, but it's so true. And it comes back to all these points we talked about, like self-defeating behaviors, managing ourselves, burnout, coping styles. Like how can we find ways? And for me, like finding a pause, a moment of silence within a crowded room, even like to find that area that we can increase, like the focus on, where we are, what needs to get done, all of that. And I'm curious from your perspective, meditation um, and other techniques that, that might be really, really helpful. Oh yeah. I could, I can ramble on meditation for a while. <laughs> so I remember reading about Roman Yossi, how he was meditating 30 minutes a day in the morning and night. And he bumped that up to like an hour when the pandemic was in full, full swing, because it was just, he found it as such a valuable tool to, again, calm the mind, control the mind, find those pauses in the day when you're feeling stressed out. But let's talk about how meditation can help your performance on the ice or just in anything. So your mind can obviously go to these very ineffective ways of thinking. And I like to describe it as the past, the future, and distractions are the main three that you might find your brain going to that are going to really take away from your game, especially when you're there on the ice. What you want is to be in the present moment. That's when if we want to think about scoring goals, that's going to be, it's going to cause issue because we can't control scoring goals, but what we can't We're stopping pucks. You know, we, we don't hate on the goalies. We're, we're going. Oh yeah. We could, we could talk about, we could talk about goalie stuff too. Of course. If I'm thinking ahead about like, I want to get, I want to help my team as much as possible. Only let in a few goals. I have no control over that. That, that might happen whether or not I play an incredible game or not. What I do have control over is what I can do in that moment. Right. If I can train my thoughts to think effectively and do what I need to do as part of the process to success, I'm going to more likely have success. However, I can't do that productive thinking if I'm not in the present moment. So if I'm thinking in the past or the future or if I'm distracted, it's taking away from my productivity in that moment to actually get the results that I want. So why, how meditation fits into this is... Basically, how I see mindfulness meditation is, let's say, for an example, you take five to 10 minutes and you're just focusing on the present moment. So this is a great way to do this is just use any of your senses. A lot of people use the breath, which is the sense of feel or touch and feel how that breath feels going in through the nose and out their mouth into their lungs and all that. However, people don't do, don't do enough of the other senses. Like I do hearing meditation and a visual meditation all the time, or I might combine it with the feel and that makes it much more exciting, much more entertaining and, and just kind of makes it less monotonous. 
But what's, what meditation is doing is essentially I'm going to take 10 minutes and only try and focus on the senses. So I'm going to look at my visual field and take in everything that it has to offer, even in the peripherals and what I'm focused on. I might try and hear every single thing that I'm hearing. It might be the refrigerator buzzing, a car driving outside, random footsteps going on around me. All this stuff is training my brain to be in the present moment. And what's going to happen 10 seconds in and 100 times during these 10 minutes, my brain is going to start thinking about something else. Thinking about something that is completely irrelevant to the present moment. It might be thinking about what I want to do later that day, something that I did earlier that day that I wasn't happy about, or just trying to plan something in general where basically I'm not in the present anymore. The point of meditation is to train that ability of becoming aware of, oh, I'm thinking about what I'm going to get for dinner tonight, not on these senses that I'm focusing on right now. And then that brain actively comes back to the present moment on these senses. And what's going on there is it's training your brain's ability to do the same exercise and behave like this when you're on the ice. So it's training your brain to become aware of when you're not focused on the present moment. So when you're thinking about, okay, I want to be focused on what I'm seeing and hearing, but I've trained myself and was like, oh, I caught myself thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. Let me come back to the present. This is going to let you become more efficient at that way of thinking when you're on the ice in this game with so many more distractions, right? You have this big game that you might be focused on and care a lot about. Your coach might be saying stuff to you. You have people in the stands that you care about. All these other distractions that you need to train your brain to become aware of when you're not in that present moment and you're getting sucked in by these distractions or the future or the past. And now you can come back to the present, which is going to be where your best performances come. So being able to meditate consistently throughout a season is basically training this tool of coming back to the present moment and training the awareness of when you're not in the present moment. And that creates so much more confidence, so much more consistency, and overall better performances over the course of a, of a season. Loving that. And I'm curious your thoughts also around like journaling. It's, oh, it's a similar idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think journaling is one of the best techniques again, because it just feeds into a lot of other self-uplifting behaviors, right? And it becomes, it triggers awareness of self-defeating or self-limiting behaviors. So a lot of times I tell clients before games, when you have those nerves going because of all that anticipation of what this game might hold or what you want to happen, what you don't want to happen, just open up a word document or get a blank piece of paper and start writing or typing. What happens is you're putting language to this abstract thinking that's going on in your head. And this allows for more problem solving and it makes whatever you're thinking about a lot more tangible. And this actually creates less stress um, as you can write about it for the future. So you're going to be a bit less nervous about maybe I'm so nervous for a game because I don't really know um, enough about why I'm nervous and why I'm feeling this way. But if I can really just write down with no, no guidelines at all. I'm just writing free flow. Basically, it's like word vomit. I'm going to learn a lot about myself and how I'm thinking. And again, that's triggering awareness. So we can do something about it and feel more confident about where our mind's at. And then Dr. Baylock has great research on choking in sports and how choking a lot of the times comes from intrusive thoughts. So this might be an intrusive thought of, uh, oh man, I already have a reputation for choking and now you're in the playoffs again. And you're getting those thoughts popping in your head. One way to control for those thoughts and make it 
make them less likely to appear in your head as powerful or as frequently is right about them before the game. So go that morning or maybe a couple hours before that game and write about why you're worried about this game and what you think you might be nervous about. And basically you will be prepared for these intrusive thoughts more so than if you weren't prepared. And what Dr. Baylock shows in her research is that writing down these thoughts that might be intrusive before games makes them just less likely to pop up in those stress-filled moments. So journaling, I think, has so many applications. I'm A lot of clients that I work with will create custom journaling prompts. So asking them after games and practices to go through this really quick journal prompt that might take five minutes and ask themselves, okay, did you go through your routine? How did you feel? Rate, rate yourself on a scale of one to 10. How did you feel this practice? What can you do for the next practice to feel like you're at a seven and not a six? And what that's going to do is over the course of a season, and again, career, is it's going to create a lot more awareness of how you can be better and what works for you. So if you tried something new that you haven't tried that much in games and practices, and you can journal about it right afterward and really get an accurate take of how it helped or hurt you, you're more likely to take the benefits or the, the benefits of what you tried into the next practice or game, and then also learn what not to do that following game there's just so much learning to be had from journaling and i think it gets a bad rap sometimes maybe with there maybe there's some stigma um just with the term journaling and i think if there's any sport that's a bit behind the times right now in the mental performance stuff it's hockey which i hate to say because i love it so much but if you look at baseball players there's multiple mental performance coaches on all the mlb teams and you can bet that all those players are journaling in some capacity yeah, and, and some, for some players, it's less effective than others. It might just be something quick or a jot rather than like a full page. But, yep. um, yeah, for the most part, hockey teams are behind the time. I know Toronto hired someone full-time, uh, and they brought in some other folks. Uh, but I'm not sure of other clubs that have. But, it, like, for example, F1, like every single driver has a mental performance coach. Like that's just a guarantee, and they basically travel with them all over the place. Uh, if the driver's working, they're working. If the driver's off and they call, like they're picking up the phone. Yeah, it's it's such a massive piece. And you know, how many times have we heard the phrase? You know, it's ninety percent mental. Okay, yes, well, maybe so we should put times. a little more value on that. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously that's the reason why we got the podcast and, and the newsletter going. But like, it, it's just such a massive thing that we just don't value enough. Like everyone understands it, but actually showing and putting towards it is great because everyone can see the sweat test right oh i'm sweating i'm getting better because i'm sweating yeah and that may not be the case but you feel like you're getting better meanwhile like mental stuff may not feel like you know you can't see it like overnight that you're getting better yep. but it has much longer lasting performance benefits that stick much better so if you look at the research like how do people actually learn a lot of what we do in sports is really stupid and really doesn't or like it's like the false confidence of improvement meanwhile this mental stuff it's it's kind of the opposite like you can see like oh we did this in practice and they did it once in a game in this one situation and never used it ever again but you're like oh they learned look how much better they are versus like mental stuff which may not like come up or be physically shown but Really, really, it's powerful stuff, especially for the long-term benefits of the person themselves, let alone at, so as a player. Yeah, a great way to think about that is, is um, let's say we do a week of training, mental performance training, and 
at the end of the week, you're like, man, I don't, I don't feel like the world has changed for me. And then we go back to someone who's new to lifting weights in the gym and they lift for a day or do a week of training sessions. And they say, man, I'm still really skinny. Like I don't have, I'm not buff like that guy. And you'd say, yeah, cause they've been working out for years and being dedicated while in that process of training. So it's important for players to, again, because this stuff is so abstract and you don't really see the sweat from training, it's important to think about this stuff as just another, another area of training where you cannot, you cannot go from not skating in your lifetime to skating for a week and think you're going to be a great skater. This stuff takes training. It takes, um, it, it takes dedication and consistency to build that muscle that is the brain. So if you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm so distracted all the time in, in my games, I, I have a lot of self-doubt, and you try and do some of these skills that we might talk about and you don't see much improvement, it's not because it's not working, it's because it's not working yet, maybe. And even then, I still think, I've, I still have heard a lot of athletes say how much they feel better and more confident just after a few sessions because that simple power of having a tool to fall back on when before you didn't have anything can be really comforting and confident inducing. And something that I love saying that my advisor told me during my master's is this stuff is not sexy, right? Doing Mets performance training, it's not nearly as sexy as going to the gym and pumping iron. It's going to take a lot of dedication though. And it needs, and it's still going to have such big payoffs, even though it doesn't look and might not be as fun as doing stuff like pumping, pumping iron or just shooting slap shots, shooting one timers for an hour. Um, it's not sexy, but boy, is it worth it. And it's gonna, and it shows up in life outside of hockey too, which I can't really say is basically the same for like strength conditioning. While that's a very valuable and necessary source of training, the type of mental performance training that we do, the stress management skills, it shows up in everyday life, parenting, being in a relationship, uh, job interviews, working in a job. So there's this, this stuff is just endlessly valuable in my opinion. And it's, uh, it's really fun when that stuff starts to kind of unfold and you can see the improvements that you're making. Not that you're biased or anything. Not that I'm biased. No, not, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to dive in on your thesis. So that was uh, mental skills to facilitate injury rehab for ice hockey players. Um, so I would love to hear what came out of your thesis, what your hypothesis is, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, when do we start to calling you doctor? Yeah, well, the doctor part is going to be a bit in the future. We'll, we'll see if that ha even happens. Um, but let's go to the thesis. So it's kind of more of a project than a thesis because it's uh, a very applicable workbook. So there's, there's a lot of information from the educational component for a player to pick up this workbook. But there's also places for the player to write down their own, um, basically, input from these certain tools. So... Uh, because this stuff is highly individualized, whether it's injury or not, uh, whatever you resonate with is going to be different than another athlete and how you might see a concept might be different from someone else. So there's room to give that athlete um, that space to make it their own. But basically, my thinking is injuries happen, especially in hockey, and a lot of athletes in sports in general kind of waste this time of being injured where they just kind of focus on physical recovery or they might just go through the motions, right? And this is goes back to the self-limiting behaviors where they're not really hurting themselves in their, in their recovery. Like, yeah, they're, they're probably getting a good amount of sleep and they're eating well, hopefully. 
But where it becomes self-limiting is they're not doing stuff to enhance this recovery, whether it's the quality of it so they can come back more confident because it's healed better or simply speeding up the recovery time, which mental performance training has shown to do both of. Increase how well this injury feels when you come back from it and how long it takes to recover. And another reason this is self-limiting to not be doing mental performance training while you're injured is because you don't really need to, you can do this stuff while injured and learn a lot from it. So basically learning how to use imagery is a great technique to use before games. This is probably the one I use the most right before games as a goalie to kind of prep my brain and body for how it feels to stop. Not the really difficult shots, but the simple ones, the ones that I'm going to be expected to stop. If I can really visualize in my head of how that looks and how that feels and how that sounds, I'm going to be more prepared for when I do step onto the ice to face these shots. Similarly, using visualization to visualize when you hit certain milestones or when you do hit a setback, because setbacks do happen in injury rehab, you can be more prepared for when that happens. And for most of all, being able to visualize when you do come back from your injury and it doesn't feel perfect. Because fears of re-injury is probably the thing that I feel most passionate about of trying to mitigate. And visualization is one of those things. So we talk about how can we visualize yourself stepping onto the ice for the first time after this broken hand or after this broken foot and dealing with the pain and adversity and the worries and anxiety you might feel and basically preparing yourself to cope effectively and not cope ineffectively. And what happens is you learn how to use visualization for this injury rehab. However, you're also using you're also training yourself to use visualization as a skill in general. So there's no reason why you can't now that you're back to playing, you're back healed, now you're competing again. You don't have to just say, "Okay, that visualization was great and it helped me get back to competing, but I'm not going to use it anymore." No, you just spent months training a mental skill that you want to use for your season and your competition. So now use the exact same skills that you learned while you were sidelined to prepare better for games or to visualize in between shifts of what you want to happen this next shift or right before your shootout attempt, how I want this to look. So you can use this time to train your brain, and it's not just going to be for the injury rehab. It's going to improve your competition or your performance once you're back to competing. So another one of these mental skills that I teach athletes is really honing in the self-talk, becoming aware of how you're talking to yourself about your injury. Are you saying, oh, it's impossible to recover from this injury? Or are you saying this is really challenging? Because that has such a different impact. Those, the very subtle different wording is going to impact you where if you say this is impossible, you're basically giving yourself the out of, oh, I'm not even going to do everything I can because I know it's not going to happen. I know I'm not going to get back to where I wanted to be. Self-defeating, right? You're not even giving yourself the chance. But if you say, this is a lot tougher than I thought, you're still opening that door, giving yourself that space of overcoming the obstacle and the adversity that is this injury. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff that we go through the workbook of training this mental skill of self-talk, visualization, uh, goal setting, and relaxation techniques. Those are the four that we focus on and how they can improve your injury rehab and also improve your game once you're healed up. All right. As you know, I'm taking notes here. What were those four again? Self-talk, visualization, goal setting, and then relaxation techniques. So when I was talking about breathing and how it helps calm down the body, that same educational component is, in, is involved in the relaxation techniques chapter of this workbook where I talk about how 
ex extending that exhale is doing wonders for your body in reinforcing the lowering the activity of your body, right? What this does is it makes it so you're reducing the muscle tension you feel. And muscle tension is a lot of the times excessive after injuries. And we're starting to do those physical therapy exercises. So we start to feel more pain during these exercises. And what ends up happening is you're not getting as good of a quality rep in for that exercise. And these, these exercises are everything because that's literally what's strengthening your body back up, right? So if you're not getting as good of a quality rep in because your, your body is so tense, you're not going to heal as quickly. But also, you're going to feel a lot less motivated if you're thinking every day you have to do exercises and you're thinking about, oh, man, that it was so hard yesterday. It was so painful. I don't want to do this. If you have the tools to control some of that pain and make it feel better, again, that just feeds into motivation and better quality reps and better quality rehab recovery. Absolutely massive. And you, you already know, because I've told you, I, I think goals are overrated. And we talked a little bit about like the difference between goals and kind of having themes and the benefits. Like you want to have an overarching goal of where you want to go. That everyone, that's, that's a great idea. But I'm, I'm a little over the smart goals. Uh, maybe it's yeah. just I've seen too many corporate slide decks and it's really gotten to my, on my nerves by now. But like the idea of themes really helping with those micro decisions and moving us in the right direction. And obviously that comes back to the idea of like a growth mindset, but just finding ways to keep motivation because it obviously does wane over time. Like New Year's resolutions, they fail at such a high rate for a reason. And I found for me personally and a lot of my friends that have come to this conclusion of like using a theme or a one word, um, and maybe you can go in, into the rock story a little bit, I found it to be super powerful in driving long-lasting change uh, to become, you know, we'll never truly get there, but towards the person we want to become. Yeah, so let's let's go to that that one word, that rock thing. Um, basically, there's this concept of writing your one word on a rock, and you just put it on your desk where it's in your vision all the time. And what this word should be doing is it's basically acting as this phrase or this mantra to direct your thinking whenever you feel like you need some direction. This could be because you're feeling burnt out, you're not motivated, you're feeling frustrated. And if your one word really resonates with you, because let's say it's about relationships within your work or within your team, and that's why you do this, that's what you wanna focus on. If you're feeling really burnt out and frustrated and you think back to, wait a minute, relationships, how can I use this to my benefit? Maybe you can come to that next practice of, hey, you know what, I'm just going to focus on uplifting everybody else, even though I'm not feeling great. Or, hey, I'm injured, I'm going to use, and I know that relationships are huge for me, and I know I'm missing out on a lot of relationships right now because I'm not going to practices as much. I'm going to start enacting or using more of my support network to build up my relationships or maybe kind of use them to help me out. And basically, this one word is just a great way to focus thinking because if we have, again, these big goals that are driving our motivation. That might be great of like, oh, it's a gold medal or a Stanley Cup. That might be great in moments of understanding why you're doing this and what's the end goal. However, there's going to be a lot of times where that is not enough because it's so far in the future and it's so abstract and you might have more doubt reaching those goals. So again, we want to go to things where we feel more control and more power over. And what this is, is this one word doing something like relationships, focusing on that for one day or one week is so much more empowering than thinking about, okay, what am I going to do 
to try and lift the Stanley Cup in 15 years and I'm feeling injured right now. Like that is not going to help me nearly as much as something as simple as uh, focusing on my relationships. And what I talk about in the goal setting parts of my workbook is that one, it's so important to focus on daily goals. That is where all the magic happens in not only injury rehab, but just performance excellence, right? We, we talked before the podcast about the monotony of excellence, how it's really boring to be excellent because you have to do really important things every single day. And daily goals is where the best rehab comes, where you're doing stuff every single day to help your body, whether this is the exercises that you're prescribed to do or focusing on your nutrition and sleep and all of that. So that's kind of the way I break down goal setting to be a bit more tangible, a bit more empowering rather than focusing on like, oh yeah, what do you focus on when you're all better and healed up? Focus on that moment. And the other part of the goal setting chapter is set these goals with your physical therapist or sport medicine provider, because the more they're in the loop, the more that they can help you out or the more that they can give you accurate goals. Because what if you have this goal of, I want to be on the ice in six months and more, more realistically, it's not, you shouldn't be on the ice for 10 months that is going to really harm your motivation at some point when you realize you might've had a setback and you didn't actually have a setback. It was just an unrealistic goal to set. And then again, your physical therapist is going to help you set the best daily goals possible as opposed to you just doing this by yourself. So a lot of times in the workbook, I encourage the reader to collaborate with their physical therapist, sport medicine provider, or even people like their coach. So something we might do um, in that workbook is create a performance profile. So where are you confident in? Where would you rate yourself a 10 out of 10? And where would you rate a one out of 10? So this could be stuff like confidence and relaxation techniques, stress management, but also um, balance, shooting, all this stuff that might be relevant to my performance. And bringing that to a coach or a physical therapist is going to, again, increase the awareness of them, of what they know about you, and then put you guys on the same page so that you can help each other more effectively. Yeah, I think that's a critical component. Like goals are really good with groups and obviously themes are great with groups. That's why you see words and phrases all over locker rooms, but like finding ways and you said it perfectly to help with the monotony of excellence. It's it's such a critical component because it's not all fun and it's not always super entertaining, but you got to do what you got to do if you want to get where you want to be. Um, you know, I wish I could eat ice cream all day, but then, then that would cause a whole nother issue. Um, so that, that's massive. And I, I want to kind of go back a little bit to your thesis a little bit. We were talking about just like the mental skills and getting your mental reps and increasing your performance while injured. Like it, it's, it's common knowledge, especially if you've gone through this, like you're, if you start become a, becoming a coach right after playing, like that one to three years that you're done playing and you're starting to coach is like your best hockey that you've ever played. Like it was not when you were still playing, it was actually after. And like, how, how do you, you know, and the reason for that is because you're getting all these mental reps and you're viewing the game from a different perspective. Like, yeah, you can do that exactly when you're injured as well, or say, you know, you're healthy scratch or you're a JV kid trying to go up to the next level or you're U16 wanting to play U18 next year, whatever it may be. Like, finding ways to get mental reps like what would i do in this situation how would i attack this you know why, why is x y and z doing this why does a team run that like there's so many like it the, it's a pandora's box so i can keep going but like yeah. you know the what i'm getting at it like how do we utilize that downtime per se 
from a physical engagement of playing the sport to increase our effectiveness on the ice. Cause you can come back better than ever. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of times from injuries. Uh, yeah, and- so I'm curious about like ways that you've seen it done or research on how to effectively get in the, the mental reps in quotations. Yeah. So I'll, actually I'll just talk about what I was doing with a client recently who, um, starting to go into juniors and he suffered an injury that basically he was going to be better about a month before tryouts. So very nerve wracking because he's not getting nearly the training that he wanted to, to prepare for this tryout. And what we did was we practiced. So he talked to me about what he wants to work on, right? I'm never giving you what to visualize. We have to talk about what you think is important to visualize. So that that's where a lot of the, this awareness comes back in, right? Like, so what we did with this, with this client is basically think about the move that he wanted to learn, right? So you can just imagine like a toe drag maybe into your, um, into your skates kind of area and then shooting it. And while he couldn't practice this in the perfect conditions, which would be on the ice, maybe with cones or other players set up there, so he can really replicate the same kind of thing, he just went in his garage and was doing what he could do. So he was dealing with a foot injury, so he couldn't really have the movement component there as much but he still had the stick handling component there. So he could practice that physical component, but what he added onto this was visualizing how to use it in a, an actual game and also visualizing it every night for just a few minutes to basically prep his body and his neurological network to be more familiar with how it feels and how, do it, how it feels to execute that shot and move well. And that feeds in to the actual reps that he was able to do while sidelined and that fed into the execution of this skill once he was healed up. So if he was only doing, let's say, just the physical work of wasn't really do, being able to do the movement with the feet, but he was doing the stick handling, that's going to help him for sure. However, he wasn't doing the added mental reps to, even, to train the skill even more than he had beforehand. And this was adding into how well he was able to execute this, this stick handle and shot once he got back onto the ice. And a lot of times the, these mental reps might be to improve a skill like that. And then mental reps might be to basically prepare for certain things. So how can we, okay, so you're going into your juniors season, maybe you're going into college, anything that's going to be nerve wracking, or maybe you're going into a season and you're like a captain now. So added demands, added potential for stress. How can we use mental reps to prepare for that stress? Now, if we, let's say you're playing in a massive stadium, a stadium you've never played in before. And it has like twice as amount, twice the amount of fans you've ever played in before. You can get mental reps to prepare for heading out onto the ice in front of all those people to control how your body responds to all that stimulus, as opposed to just letting it happen and hoping your body handles it. Well, the player who prepares their body for stepping out onto the ice for the first time in months in front of uh, an NHL sized crowd or something, their body's going to be more prepared to deal with that stress. And in essence, there's going to be less time required to refocus and less energy required to refocus and get back to your best mental games possible. If you can prepare for this, this uh, sensation of stepping onto the ice and being kind of floored by the attention and all the eyeballs on you, you are going to, it's not going to have, as profound of an effect on your body. Your heart rate might not jump as much as it did and you'll have this confidence of, okay, I was ready for this. I know what to do and how to keep my brain focused so that I can be in my best mindset possible. So 
I know that a lot of players, including me, have their bet their worst period is the first period because they're not really dialed in yet. They they really get going in the second period and then obviously the third is like the last, it's kind of like the last the kick of the race. So it's easy to get dialed in there. But that first period, a lot of players are left getting dialed in, getting focused, getting that bad shift out of the way, facing that first shot. And so anything we can do to get yourself closer to your peak potential when that puck drops is massive. Yes. And and for me, I don't don't know what your definition of mental strength is, but it's like just the ability to focus on the the next most important thing. And I believe I stole that from the basketball coach Wooden. It's it's absolutely massive. Yeah. Um, I think another thing with mental toughness is basically your response to adversity and stress because stress is just built into not only the human body, but into sports. Right. And mental toughness is okay. How can someone respond to stress and are they going to use skills that we've taught them or are they going into these self-defeating self-limiting behaviors? Love that. And this goes beyond it. This this will wrap it up beautifully here. Um, I mean, mentally tough, it's about mentally tough people, not just players that we're really talking about here at the end of the day. Like, Coaches and parents too can really take from all of these lessons. Okay, like your your kid didn't do well or got benched or isn't getting the playing time you think they should, whatever it may be. Like, how can we help parents and coaches deal with the stress? Obviously, there's many techniques we've talked about, but maybe specifically to parents because co- coaches kind of have an idea about all of this stuff just through coaching uh, the kids themselves. But I really want to focus on that because I don't think they get enough attention. Yeah, absolutely. I actually just released uh, a blog post on my website, um, five guidelines for parents to, to basically help their, their youth athletes. And one of these guidelines that I talk about is, note again, awareness. Are you aware of whose agenda are you serving? Are you serving your own because you want your kid to be a great hockey player? Or are you doing what they actually want? So you can imagine the problems that arise from me with my kid and saying, no, you're going to play this next level of hockey because I want you to. And even though they don't want to, they're going to be more prone to burnout. There's going to be maybe a rift in that relationship between their parent and their kid. And ultimately that kid is just not going to find this sport as fun because they're not doing it for themselves. They're doing it because their parents are kind of forcing them into it. So encouraging parents to have conversations with their kid and understand, help them understand what they want and how they can be a part of that. And what I feel like I've seen just so often is parents trying to live out what their dreams were through their kids. And that's why these kids are suffering, right? Because they're not doing what they want. They're doing what their parents want. So that's kind of one important guideline. And then another one that I feel very strongly about is in these discussions about your kids play in their sports, even in school, what are you first talking about? Let's say it's the car ride back. Are you only asking about their goals, the points that they got, if they won or lost? Because what that signals, if I'm only hearing about the goals that I scored or if I won and, oh, great that I won or, oh, man, that's a bummer that you lost. I am now doing exactly what we don't want to do in mental performance training where I'm focusing on outcomes and results that I cannot control and not focusing on what I did well, the process of how that went, and ultimately the parent is telling me that I'm supposed to value goals and wins and not um, camaraderie and team teamwork and defensive play. And even when I play well, but still lose, I mean, okay, as a goalie, 
I faced this for my whole childhood where I had pretty solid games, but I was always on a losing team and I could look at, okay, yeah, I may, I may have lost six zero, but boy, did I have some really good saves and really good plays there that I can still be proud of. However, if my dad is only asking me about the goals that I let in and how many losses uh, I've had this season, I'm not going to be proud of what I did well. I'm just going to be focused on the stuff that he's telling me is important. So as a parent, you can really effectively mold the mind of your kid if you're asking about the stuff that's a bit more important to ask about, like how much fun they're having, what they learned, what they failed at, because I think it's important to note it, like to bring attention to what they could improve on and get better at, but something that's in their control, right? So uh, that that's a big tip that I had is um, understanding what you're signaling that you value to your kid and maybe changing that uh, to be something more more healthy and, and something that's going to produce a more effective and um, I guess a mindset that's going to make sports more fun and not only about the, the, the points and the goals. Have you seen this video that's been going around? Uh, I love this. So I want to continue this, this train here of uh, Jeff Daniels. Like he was like a behind the actors guild or something like that with Jeff Daniels. And he talked about like not living in LA, but actually living up in like the Detroit area and doing hockey with yeah, this sounds kids. familiar. Keep keep going, yeah. And like he talked about having such a close relationship with his kids later in life, and he believed that it was because of all those car rides with his sons, and the fact that he decided very purposefully not to talk about hockey. If they wanted to talk about it, they would, but mm-hmm. he wasn't yes. going to be forcing it on the kids, and it was just setting up for a long term successful like. Every parent wants to still have some involvement with their kids as they're growing up and they're going off on their own. And it's like just watching what you've slaved away at for all these years, like hopefully having some success. And, and how do we actually go about our kids wanting to continue these relationships into adulthood? Um, and it was so valuable. So if you've seen it, please chime in on your thoughts. But I, I think it was just absolutely uh, amazing on how he approached parenthood for a hockey dad. Yeah, so, so powerful to, I mean, those car rides are a lot more powerful than I think a lot of people think. Um, I remember there was a game back when I was a kid, and I, I, I was, it was when I was playing goalie, and I had moved up like a league just to sub for one game, and that team was stacked, and I remember we won like 10 to 7, and I was just so happy that we won because I had moved up uh, a league, and I actually got a win out of it, and I was super nervous. But I remember, and it tells you something, because I was like, probably 11 years old when this happened. And I still remember this happening is my dad. So I'm stoked on this game. And my dad, the first hockey question he asks me in the car, I don't bring it up. He asks me, or basically he starts to bring attention to all the goals that I let in and not the win. And like this feel good moment of moving up a league and getting a win. And it made me feel like, Oh man, I I'm not as proud as I should feel now of this win. And, and maybe he had a point, but was it worth bringing it up? Probably not. And it still was in my mind because it, it went from this moment of pride to focusing on, oh, why I shouldn't feel as prideful as I should. And maybe that is important for the athlete who's like 18 and they're in their peak and they're trying to really make it to the next difficult level. And it's important to focus on where they can improve, obviously. But a lot of, the, a lot of parents take that mindset to, to an extreme with their you know, eight-year-olds, their 10-year-olds who are strictly in this to have fun and you know, be healthy and play the sport. And they're talking about this stuff that's taking away from the pride. 
And again, not only is that hurting their relationship with hockey, it hurts that relationship between parent and kid. And something I talked about in this blog post is you don't, it's, it's dangerous to blur your role to this kid. And what happens is in mental performance, we talk a lot about how we do not wear multiple hats. We strictly want to be the mental performance coach and not your strength coach. We're not going to be giving you advice on how to become stronger in the gym. That's the strength coach's job. Just like I wouldn't give you advice on nutrition for parents to be as effective as they can in their role within an athlete support network. They want to be the parent and not anything else. Now, again, some parents might be coaches, um, like actual coaches on the bench. And then they also might be like a secondary coach to their kid. And a lot of dynamics that'll work out really well where the, the kid wants that extra coaching. They, they find it strengthens their relationship with their parents, but a lot of times it actually hurts it. And again, increasing the awareness of whether or not you're having multiple roles with your kid and how that affects your relationship. And a great way to do this is maybe ask them, like ask them on this car ride home. Um, maybe you ask them, hey, do you want to talk about hockey? And if they say no, then you know, okay, it would have been bad and detrimental if I actually just started talking about this game with them. But if they, yet, they say yes, then maybe this is a great opportunity to kind of learn more about how they saw the game, um, signal my value to things that they might have did well that they didn't even notice. So again, being aware of how your relationship is with your kid and their sport and how you can bring them up with that relationship and not tear them down is just going to be, it's going to be everything. Well, Gabe, I have to say, this has been a wonderful conversation and I appreciate you coming on. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, two minutes floor is yours. Where can all of these wonderful people find you out there in the world? Yeah. Thank you so, so much for having me again. Um, so I'm Zellico performance on Instagram. I that's Z E L I C O performance. I post a lot on Instagram about every week or two of maybe really quick tips on tips that you can bring into your game right away, uh, different mindsets to think about. There's also a lot of examples I show in pro sports and being the hockey lover that I am, I post a lot of hockey stuff. And then I also have a website, zellicoperformance.com, and that's where you can get in touch with me about some coaching. And also feel free to message me on Instagram about anything, any questions you have, any stuff you want to talk about. I love talking about this material at all times. And, and Hey, I think you're a hockey player if you're listening to this. So if it's hockey, then all the best. Um, it's even better. So yeah, shoot me a message and we can talk about any, any of your mental game where you want to develop. And yeah, again, thank you for having me. This is a, this is a great time and I hope, uh, hope your listeners got a lot from it. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch you Buttes here next week for a brand new episode.